What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode. I believe this is 145 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. I'm your host, Rob Santos, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my co-host, Drew McCaffrey. How's it going, everybody? And today we are jumping, finally, into a novel that most of our Dresden Files listeners have just been aching for us to get to, screaming for us to start, Changes. With such an insane volume, Drew and I made the decision to split our first Dresden Files book uh, into two parts. I realize I phrased that poorly. For the first time, to split a Dresden Files book into two parts. Today, we're starting with part one, which covers everything up through and to the end of chapter 28. Drew, I can't decide whether I envy your task of recapping for this week or just pity you for it. So, without further ado, let's go. All right. Changes opens with one of Butcher's classic inciting lines. Susan is back in town, and she needs Harry's help because their daughter has been kidnapped by the Red Court. With Martin in tow, Susan reveals that things have heated up in the conflict between the Fellowship of St. Giles and the Vampires. Harry, despite his rage at Susan for hiding their daughter from him, of course springs into action. They first go to his office building, which Susan tells him is actually owned by the Red Court, to find key computer files. They fight off several vampires before the building explodes. With the help of Rudolph, Harry is implicated in the explosion, and he must hurry to avoid being arrested. He packs up everything incriminating in his apartment, but the FBI arrives while he's still inside. He takes drastic action, opening a portal to the never-never. He finds himself in a hostile garden and gets attacked by a Hydra-esque giant centipede. He's forced to bury Bob, the swords, his gun, and more before returning to his apartment. Once back, he's immediately arrested. He's questioned by the FBI agent Tilly, who in a shocking turn of events, believes Harry and is revealed to be a practitioner of magic. Harry goes free, but is immediately the target of an assassination attempt. He heads to Rudolph's house with Thomas, Molly, and Mouse, hoping to connect Rudolph to the Red Court. A monster attacks and is driven off, but not before Harry is captured by two vampires, the Ebes. They question him before getting chased off by Mouse, and Harry falls unconscious. He returns to his apartment, where he finds Leah and the comatose forms of Susan and Martin. Harry quickly realizes that the Garden of the Never-Never is Leah's, and she's been protecting him. She gives him a gem from his mother, which contains knowledge, all of her knowledge of the ways through the Never-Never. With that knowledge, Harry, Susan, and Martin attack the vampire storage facility in Nevada. They discover that the Red Court is planning a Mayan blood sacrifice ritual in Mexico, and Harry goes to meet Marconi for more information. He sends Harry with Guard to meet Guard's boss, who turns out to be none other than Odin himself. Yep! And our selection this week ends with Harry's apartment, the target of a firebomb attack. Harry falls off a ladder trying to rescue his neighbors because of his broken leg from the fight with uh, the monster at Rudolph's house. And only manages to save them with the help of Sonya, who shows up just in the nick of time. As chapter 28 closes, Harry reveals that he cannot feel his legs. And I just realized in my summary, I got events out of order. This is what happens when I'm writing the summaries for two different books <laughs> right. in, at the same time. Because we we just recorded Turncoat. Uh, the, the whole thing with Rudolph's house happens right at the end after he goes to Nevada and meets Odin and, and Marconi and, and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Boom. Okay. Changes. Things are changing and changes. My man. Style. Let's, how do we begin with anything other than this first line? They've taken our daughter. 
Right there, ladies and gentlemen, we have a new contender for Rob Santos's possible favorite opening lines of all time. I mean, I waxed Rhapsodic in episode 23 years ago now, but the opening line of Steelheart, about the economy of the hook, bringing out, with, with as few words as possible, bringing that hook out. I explained those words, four words, I've seen Steelheart bleed, gave us so many questions. And here we are with this one. I, uh, they've taken our daughter, again, four words, right? And we have context now to be shocked and confused and indignant along with all the questions that we have. You know, I just, oh, it, it is so effective and I have to draw a point when I see it. That is so well done. That opening line was picturesque. It is definitely a, a good inciting moment, but I'm going to piss off a lot of people. Uh-oh. I was not happy. I don't like Susan. I've oh, never liked Susan. Oh, no, Drew. And I was like, immediately, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Drew, you and I, I feel like, Ugh. are going to be agreeing about this a lot in this episode. And I feel really bad because I just, we just finished wrapping, uh, we just wrapped recording the episode on Turncoat, and I did a lot of bitching in there. I called it a 4.5 out of 5, but I was so, ugh, afterward about how much bitching I had done. And then I realized, oh my God, we're going into this one where I'm going to bitch about <laughs> Susan so much. And I was like, oh no. Hearing you say that, Drew, strengthens me. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> so, it, it is, I mean, like, on a, on a pure wordsmithing level, yes, it's a good opening line. It's a good opening page. This is how you kick off a story. You, you're like, all right, stakes are high, events are in motion, we have emotional attachment, uh, emotional stakes, you know, there's, and then, of course, as, as things grow throughout this, you know, the impersonal stakes just get bigger and bigger. Um, but I, I mentioned this obliquely in our term code episode, but I wanted to save going into it uh, for this one because it, it kind of applies to both term code and especially changes. Um, and, and it's with the pacing of these books. Uh, in, I want to say it was maybe Death Masks? I talked about how, or maybe it was Summer Night, it was one of those like early mid books where I talked about how it felt like Butcher was losing the thread a little bit, where he, was, he wasn't quite able to keep all of these disparate elements aligned really well. Um, as his stories got more complicated, it, it felt like it was just on the verge of getting out of control. And... And I felt that a little bit at the beginning of Turncoat, which was the first time I'd felt that in a while. Uh, but here, it, it's on full display. Like I, the first half of this book, I feel like is a narrative mess. Um, it, it, the scene transitions are super jarring, incredibly abrupt. This is something I've complained about on a, on a couple other different books, uh, but especially on Ruin of Kings. The, the Molotov cocktail scene felt exactly like one scene in Rune of Kings that I just complained about, where it was like, there's just, there's no transition. Um, the narrative flow is, it, it's like, it's it's like this just hard change in the middle of uh, a scene where the tone completely shifts. Um, there's, there's no, like, it wasn't a satisfying transition is how I'm saying. Like, okay. Okay. Like there That's were fair. several moments where something insane happens in, in the first half of changes that 
I didn't feel any urgency because it didn't match the tone of the scene that it happened in. And the firebomb was one of those where I was just like, what, like, what am I reading? Like, and, and it really started to feel as, as I was thinking about it, um, throughout these first 28 chapters, it really starts to feel like this is like, there's too much on butcher's plate for what he's trying to do in this book. And he's just packing it all in. And so the pacing is really jarringly fast. Okay. Um, that's fair. That's fair. I will say I remember that moment surprising me a little bit. I remember I was listening to this at work. Like I said, I've been listening to these over audiobook for the last few books now, and I wouldn't normally recommend that for like a nice long conversation at a somewhat intellectual level, but I'm, I'm strapped for time. I remember that moment, and I remember um, kind of losing track of what I was doing in the moment while I was working or I was listening to, I should say. And I was surprised that suddenly there was an action scene going on. And I, I rewound it 30 seconds at a time until I found where it started. And I, it was that caught that Molotov cocktail that cut him off on the yeah. stairs there. You're, you're very right. I, I was very kind of, uh, I should say very kind of, that's kind of oxymoronic. <laughs> I was very noticeably, uh, just surprised by it. Now I didn't really stop and pay attention to it. I wouldn't say it bothered me. It did just catch me up, but I just kind of chalked it up even to just me losing attention. And I was like, Oh, that's just gotta be me fading off. Pay more attention, Rob. But if you're bringing that up, maybe there is something there, yeah. I mean, it probably yeah, like, is. I take like, your word more than mine. There's nothing necessarily bad about having an abrupt, you know, shocking event happen. I was going to ask you about something um, that happens in a Sanderson book. Remind me about that afterwards. Because but, I... Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there there has to be um, emotional investment in the scene that follows the shocking event. And, and it just, I didn't have it in, in some of these scenes. Uh, the other one that really stood out was um, in the Nevada facility when Harry and Susan are, you know, going through the, uh, looking for the files and stuff. And, and then they like, suddenly they're like in a van storage facility and they find the the Mayan stuff. And then, and then just randomly, oh, by the way, now the door's opening and closing and guys are shooting at them. And I was like, like, it, it just, the, my, my spatial... Um, understanding of the scene was completely lost. Um, he didn't paint a very good picture of where they were and and why uh, why they can just suddenly be going from a quiet conversation to like suddenly Harry's like no time to explain what we just found. People are shooting through the door that Martin's trying to keep closed and like and I and so I didn't have any like any real connection to the stakes of the scene and, and it, it sort of ruins uh, the action scene where, I don't know. It, it's, it's tough to fully put my finger on why, um, especially with the Molotov cocktail scene. Cause I didn't have the spatial issues with that one as I did in the, in the facility, but, but it was just such a jarring tonal shift where it goes from like you know this sort of heartwarming scene of Mouse getting a a crutch out from under the bed for Harry, and he's like, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna head out the door now." And then suddenly it's like Molotov cocktail, fire, saving old people, like blowing holes in the ceiling. And I was like, I was just kind of nonplussed by it. And uh, and 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 even this like what should be this crushing 
moment at the end of the chapter where Harry's like, hey, maybe ease up on this, Molly. I can't feel my legs. Like, I was just numb. Like, I didn't feel anything throughout that whole scene. I was like, I didn't... When Sonya shows up, I was like, I was just kind of like, huh. You know, it, there was there was just nothing in that scene that gripped me because of the jarring way it started. Like, I know that was a mega rant, and I probably just pissed off a ton of our Dresden fan listeners, but, like, but that that's, you know, this is inking out loud. Like, we, we call it like we see it, and unfortunately, that's, I'm pretty underwhelmed by the first half of this book. Wow, I am so surprised to hear you say that. Wow. Because um, <laughs> I, you're right, you, when you brought up Sonia appearing, I heard very specifically, specifically recall being very surprised by that too and kind of being taken aback because I didn't, that there wasn't like an entry. He was just, he was just suddenly there in a, in a desperate moment and we just had to take it in stride. Um, you did bring up a few more points. I, I didn't come out of the first half with the same impression quite to this degree, but you are bringing up point after point where I did kind of stumble. So I definitely see what you're saying for sure. I think there's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> what about you? Let's get some style points from you. <laughs> yeah, sorry, dude. No, it's, it's, no, it's no problem. Um, and, you know, it's, it's hard and as as fun, even though it's hard as it is to see Harry Dresden under this kind of stress. I gotta say, it's doing wonders for all of the interpersonal relationships that he's currently got scattered into the wind. Harry's like Harry and everybody around Harry is coming together, and it's it's even gaining momentum. Harry is gaining momentum here, and it's a lot of fun, and it's really rewarding to see. Um, so I, I really wrapped up my style points by saying, in terms of style, basically this book is living up to everything I was expecting it to be and somehow even more. <laughs> wow. So we have very different, uh, we have very reactions. disparate opinions going out of the first yeah. half of this book. Wow. Like this is for me, this is the weakest opening act of a book in the series since Blood Rites. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to spend the next hour, I, I imagine. So we're going to have a controversial reaction to this yeah. episode. <laughs> so is that everything style, though? Anything else style, particularly? That, or do you want to go into our characters? Um, that's really my main style thing that I, I had to talk about. Uh, let's let's move into characters. I have a couple of miscellaneous things, but that can wait. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> starting with Harry. What a, what, a, what a few days it's been for Harry Dresden, eh? Yeah. I, yeah. It's just, ah, uh, I love this loose cannon factor that just got turned from 10 to 11 here. Like, this this is yes. the Harry Dresden that we all love. Just, oh. Yeah, I, I even though I don't love his humor the way you do, I, I don't, like, the a lot of his one-liners and, and snappy retorts don't land for me the way they do for you. There are definitely a lot of more moments in, in the first half of this that I appreciated Harry's just like complete unwillingness to guard his tongue. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Like, like I, in, in certain situations, I do like that a lot. I, I particularly liked it when he's uh, going into Monarch securities and he meets the, the twin receptionists and it's like his mouth just starts moving without consulting the rest of his body. And, and he's just like being super crass. Yeah. For and, yeah. Chapter seven, yeah. challenging Ariana in front of Christos and the Wardens. Just the command for Harry's arrest. Oh, the, yeah, that too. Yeah. The six Wardens stopping after he glares you sure down. you want to do this, boys? It's really how you want to do it. It's like, oh, so much badass. Yeah, yeah it's it's just it's a lot of fun. Uh, more fun than I was even expecting, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
uh, one one you know maybe a little bit of a, a transition to like uh, um other characters, but I really liked the like the worry room. Yeah, I like the idea of that. Um, yeah, it also just cool. sounds super cozy. Like I would I would love to just like unwind in there. Like if I got something on my chest, I would love to have a room like that. Yeah. Your fully stocked bar, fireplace, some comfy, you know, couches and chairs, maybe some books, and just be like, all right, this is where I go to, like, I got to get the stress off my shoulders, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And she was even said, like, you know, where do you think we went when, you know, we were talking regretfully about Molly, you know? Yep. Uh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, and I actually, I like Lucio a lot more now that she's, like, back to being Lucio. I had a... I, I guess I didn't mention this in our turncoat episode. I, I probably should have, and I don't know how I didn't have a note on it. Um, I had a little bit of an issue with it in, in it would have been white Knight, I guess, uh, how like over sexualized Lucio got in that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then we get the explanation in turncoat. I'm like, okay, this makes sense now that like she was enchanted to be unlike herself. Um, and, and I, I don't, I didn't like Lucio when she was dating Harry. Like, I thought she was a way better character when she was just being the captain of the wardens. And now she's back sure, to that. Sure. And I'm like, okay, good, good. Um, you know, and, and I liked her interactions with Harry in, in the worry room there. Like that was a solid scene. It was a really solid scene. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't write down anything in particular about Lucio, uh, but I have no complaints there. There's just so much else happening that I have to that I had written to talk about. <laughs> like, oh yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm already going to have to to stop myself from talking about a few things, or we're going to run a three hour episode for the first half of this book. <laughs> I'm not going to let that happen. <laughs> yeah, no. Okay. Um, should we get Susan out of the way? Uh, fine. Since we're still on Harry, right? Yeah. But I did what I thought was best for her. With those words. Susan Rodriguez of the Dresden Files went from incredibly frustrating character in my books to one of the most loathsome individuals I've ever read. I won't try and claim she's evil. She's clearly not evil. That title belongs to other characters like Toral Sadius and Count Baron and Nick Socorso, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Susan is downright loathsome, odious. In fact, that might be the first time I've used the word non-ironically after reading the Stormlight Archive. In her sheer arrogance... To bear someone else's child and to hide it from them. And to hide it for so long, only to the eventual and obvious detriment of both parties involved. Now, Harry is scared for the life of a daughter that he never knew he had. And this poor girl is terrified and scarred for the rest of her life, probably, because Susan thinks... No, doesn't think. Nay, deigns to take upon herself the decision as to whether or not she deserves to know her father, or he her, or whether or not he's even in a position to help. That's just not the kind of decision you let human beings make for themselves, right, Susan? I'm... I will let you jump in here before I continue. I'm only, like, a third of the way through my bitching about Susan. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. I hate... I mean, I hate this... I hate this character. I hate her now. Like, okay, look. Butcher's trying to get us to, to like get Susan back in the fold. Like, and, and he's specifically playing Susan off against Martin where Martin's like the obnoxious one who we're not supposed to like, but Harry is still into Susan and still loves her. So it's like, he needs this, this dynamic, right. To, 
to make the relationship interesting again, where Harry has this jealousy of Martin, even though, like, probably Martin isn't, you know, like, you know, that that's not a thing Harry should be worrying about. But, yeah, yeah. But Harry's insecure, right? Um, but I hate Susan way more than I dislike Martin. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Martin's... Martin's a little prunish. He's he's a little he's got something up his butt that he needs to get sure. removed. But hey, like, yeah, why not? Why not? But there are lots of people who are like that, and 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 sometimes you just get to know them, and and you're like, okay, now we get along. Mm-hmm. Susan, the more I get to know her, the more I dislike her. Yeah, and it and it pissed me off in the one scene where, uh, uh Martin tried to like justify Susan's choice to go investigate the red court, despite Harry telling her not to being like, well, Harry didn't give you enough information. And Harry's like, you're right. I didn't give you enough information. I was like, I'm not going to curse. I'm not going to curse. Yeah. But I was like, BS. Yeah. (laughs) That was still one of the most colossally stupid choices I've read a character make in a long time. And now she's made two of them. Yeah, Could that fall in that category, was, and I'm just like I, I just I, uh, I have a really hard time getting into this book purely because Susan is in. Is yeah, I, I I was bitching about Susan back in I think I want to say it was book three or book four. Yeah, uh, Grave it must Peril. have been book four. Grave what? Peril. No, no, Grave Peril. Yeah, well, that was she wasn't when she in book made four. her. That's right. Uh, that Grave Peril is when she made her decision to go to Bianca's ball and and get right, 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 and captured. she was completely yeah. absent from book four, right. Uh, that sounds. Right. I remember being, and then she showed uh, back up in Death Mask, and that. that's when Maggie was right, right. Conceived. Um, yeah. fucking. Uh, what was I gonna say? I remember rights. bitching at that point, saying, remember. "This woman, I hate her because she seems determined to make as many and as large mistakes as possible." Yeah. And boom. I mean, this is right along. Like, I hate. I hate this character now. And the <laughs> fact that what it was for me that what really drove that point home is the fact that she decided to try and justifying it with. These endlessly overused, I thought what I did was best, and I was, I was trying to protect you, I was trying to protect her. Every time any character in a movie or book or video game or stage play ever tries to hide a big secret from another and it comes out, there it is again. I was just doing it to protect, I couldn't believe he honestly, he being Butcher, meant, I guess it looks like he means for us to empathize with Susan, because he seems to be trying to do so with uh, the, uh, Martin, 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 right? Well, and, and even from like the comments other characters make about like how like, Oh, it's the grief of a mother, you know, like it's such a bland excuse for me, right? For Susan, specifically for Susan, not to say it doesn't happen. And there are other scenarios herself in that situation. Uh, But you know what? It's not just that butcher is trying to like let her off. It feels to me, but we're having moments now where Harry looks into her eyes and started feeling the old heat, you know, and she looks back and I'm just, grabbing the handfuls of hair on my own head. I pulled up my phone several times in these moments to say, so hear me under God. If Harry somehow ends up back <laughs> in a relationship with this woman, I am formally ending Inking Out Loud's coverage of the Dresden Files <laughs> right there. Like, I, like, I was, like, MVP Molly, okay? When she calls out Harry for, like, kissing Susan back. Yeah. I was like, you go, Molly. Well. Thank you. I don't think that was particularly Harry's fault because it's like the narcotic kiss, right? He doesn't really have much defense against that. I suppose as a wizard, he might have a few more tricks that he could have... I don't know. But no, I I was so on board with Molly oh, calling him out. Yeah. And, and he's like angry. He's like yeah. trying to tell her, like, you, you, it's not your place. She's like, 
and she stands her ground. Like, way to go, yeah. Molly. She doesn't look at it, you but know? she stands her ground. Yeah. There, there are a couple of points in the first half of this book where I was very pleased with Molly's character. Uh, I thought it was great that we got a, uh, at least some acknowledgement of the fact that Molly was raised Catholic and that she is, um, that she hasn't just completely abandoned her faith. Uh, and in fact, that was, once again, I, I, I'm going to give Butcher some kudos here, uh, a really good representation of uh, being a person of faith, where he, he talks about this idea of um, people who question things. And, and typically, those who question things and find their answers are the strongest in their faith. And uh, that is, that's something I've experienced. I've talked about this before on the podcast that I am Catholic and that I went through a a period of my life where I was strongly questioning my faith and and struggling with, with, you know, some of the, the things that come along with that. And, and I found my answers and I found my peace with my Catholic faith. And, and I am very sturdy in that faith now. Uh, It's not just like, I was raised this way, therefore I believe it. It was that I, I interrogated myself and and my beliefs, and then found what those truly are. And and I really liked the shout out uh, to that journey for Molly in this book. See, I'm I'm, I'm torn because I. I... I'm still so angry at Susan and want to bitch about Susan, but I don't want to follow such an insightful and introspective point with Susan, you know? But we learn from, we learn from the Lenanchi that it's theoretically possible to cure vampires of their condition. And I groaned so loudly. And immediately after that, Harry wakes Susan from Leah's sleeping spell, and Susan claims she was dreaming, and it was about being human again. Yeah. I'm hoping she dies. And I have two reasons. One, redemption. I don't think I would take anything less than life and death sacrifice on her part as payment for what she did to both Harry and her daughter. I want to see her die, but I want to see her die carrying Maggie out to safety into Harry's arms maybe before collapsing or even cooler, holding off like a wall of vampires to give them time to escape. That would be dope. At least I can accept that she's tried to pay for such monumental mistakes. And that leads me into the second reason I want Susan to die, because I need to know, and I mean absolutely know, that Harry's not going to end up together with her again. So. Yeah. 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 Uh, I'm, I'm on board with that. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I want to start a hashtag, fuck Susan, but, you know, might not uh, be as relevant now. <laughs> to start something like that. Maybe in the Discord I will. Uh, anyway. <laughs> so. I'm done about Susan. Anything about anything else about Susan? Nope. Okay. Murphy? Please, no. Anything? Anything at all? Really? Murphy, I don't have much. Uh, I didn't have anything to say about Murphy. She's, Murphy was Murphy. Yeah. She's got a key to his place. That's almost... Uh, okay, actually, I do have something to say about yeah. her. Yeah. Um, I have grown to like her more. Okay. Uh, early on in the series, I was... I. I was just kind of meh on her, whereas, like, she just really felt like a walking stereotype of the, like, spunky, empowered woman. Okay. (laughs) Um, Okay, yeah. And really over the last few books, I think I've gotten a greater appreciation for her depths. 
uh, as as her friendship with Harry has grown, where it, it it's not just like um, you know at the start of the series where there's this tension between them because he won't share details with her and she doesn't trust him. And then it becomes this like intermittent smoldering potential love interest. And then, and, and this is why I love that elevator scene that you hate so much. <laughs> uh, I, I talked about it on our proven guilty episodes. Like I hate the outcome, but I like this. Really, if you really want to have a successful romantic relationship, you need to be more than just like, you know, sexually interested in each other. You right, need to right. have a friendship. You need to have an understanding and a relationship with each other. And that's what has grown between the two of them since that elevator scene. So I, I like that. Mm. Yeah, my only point about Murphy so far, and I have a feeling that a feeling that I'll have much more to say about her in the second half, but she has a key to his place, and I wrote key in, in quotes, and I wrote that's almost as adorable as it is utterly terrifying, because what's the point of having so much magical warding if a simple key can get someone past it? We're supposed to believe that the Red Court is performing a ritual of this size at one of the most magically active areas, or I guess this is a ley line, I assume, to perform a death spell of this magnitude just to get at Harry Dresden. But somebody with the right knowledge could just find a way to search everything Karen Murphy owns and find the key to Dresden's magical warding. That's just a little it's just a little odd, that's all. I feel like someone like oh. Vince could probably have succeeded where I guess the entire Red Court has failed so far. I don't know, I feel like there's... Uh, what you just said there, uh, someone with the right knowledge. I feel like with the right knowledge is doing a lot of work. Oh, sure. <laughs> I, I get like, as, to have a key that can get past a ward. I don't know. Search Karen Murphy. It's kind of, yeah. I mean, I expect maybe somebody will, uh, I don't know, use that to their advantage sometime down the road, use his connection with Murphy against him. I don't know. I just, it seemed like, uh, I, I feel like Vince would have succeeded here. Like I said by now, cause I like Vince quite a bit, but yeah, I'm still excited for Murphy in second, in, in the second part. Okay. Thomas? Uh, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, okay, Thomas. Um, I was relieved, but a little disappointed at the same time. That, Elaborate. Like, Thomas is not as he used to be, obviously. But I feel like Butcher slightly reeled it back a bit from that scene at the end of Turncoat where Thomas is just cold and antagonistic and just completely unwilling to be Harry's brother. And we have, I, you know, like what, what's the, what was the quote? I need to pull it up again. Um, uh, don't call me, you know, I'll be oh, patient. Yeah. I said, but not forever. Like, and then right away, Harry calls him and Thomas just shows up to help Harry again. I was like, so I feel like he was sort of undoing some of the emotional impact of that final scene in Turncoat by having Thomas be, like, willing to show up and, and be brotherly, even if he still has this, you know, like, more vampire-esque side to him now. But like, I, I, was, I was a little disappointed in that. Hmm. I would think that maybe Thomas feels like, and he knows Harry well enough to know that he really did get through in a major way, in a weighty way. And as soon as Harry's calling him again, I think a part of Thomas might understand that, oh, this has to be something real. But I'm just, yeah, maybe I'm except, just trying to excuse except it. Except it's explicitly shown in that scene that Thomas doesn't think that. Yeah. Because Harry didn't yeah. tell him what it was. And Thomas is like, well, if I had known it was important, I would have showed up faster. 
Yeah. And it's like back to them being like brotherly bantering, you know, and it just, it just didn't seem like it, it followed from the way Turncoat ended. See, I'm a little torn on Thomas myself too, but I don't think I don't think for the same reason. Like on one hand, I said earlier that I wanted to explore him and his conflicts more as a character. I want to see him confront them more, and we're getting that. There are plenty of opportunities he's had here and just in the first half to confront his nature, that demon inside of him, in the first half of this book. And while mm-hmm. I have mad respect for his self-control, because I, you know, I, I believe that it's, it's it's just ridiculous. I find it hard to believe that none of the women in his life seem to have similar fortitude of will, like. I expressed a bit of frustration, perhaps, with his past troubles from books eight or nine, I think it was, when he's unable to hold a job because apparently no women around him are capable of not throwing themselves at him. It just makes me feel a little, like, greasy when I have to buy into that. Humans, human will seems to be almost entirely absent where Thomas is concerned. And I'll note that Harry mm. seems able to resist Lara Wraith we, we talked about time this. and time we again. We talked about this. There was a difference in, there was a fundamental difference in Thomas's demeanor and magical power when he was like going from job to job because he wasn't feeding he was starving and that like cranks his aura up to 11 oh i get i get that oh yeah. i'm not saying and, that, that so doesn't make sense i just hate that like, this is a magic that just takes away human will when it gets extreme enough well that's why it's scary <laughs> that's why it's scary you're sure I, yeah. you're right that's absolutely terrifying <laughs> but it still just feels a little greasy for me to buy into especially when harry again like harry doesn't seem to fall into that with lara wraith of yeah, he does. She's feeding quite a bit. But no, because he's able to at least control himself. I mean, Molly not is really. not able to control herself at all. Now, granted, Molly might not be the greatest example. Of yeah, and will, also that. <laughs> but I just, it seems to me that, I don't know, Thomas has, it's just that, that kind of magic that completely destroys anything resembling human will as long as it gets extreme enough, it bothers me. It's on some sort of moral level. I don't like that kind of magic. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't like it on a moral level either, but I don't no, but have I mean, a like that narrative exists, problem yeah, with it. No, no. <laughs> I don't like that it's part, that it seems to have rules, established rules in this world. It's like, no. But, yeah. Um, um, yeah I'm not see. blaming Thomas for that, though. <laughs> uh, how about Tilly? What do you think of Till- Tilly? I love, dude, Tilly's awesome. Hell yeah, Tilly's the I've, man. I forgot to write down points about Tilly, and that'll let you know how, just how much I have to say here, but I just, Tilly's dope. I, yeah. Yeah, I want him to stick around. Like, I want it. I want to see a lot more of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like and, I was, I was excited, you know, to find out that he, he for sure has magic. Like I, I had a feeling he did like there was, you know, there, there were a couple points earlier in the conversation where butcher was kind of dropping hints, you know, where he's like, no, he's telling the truth. And he just says it with utter confidence. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're like, okay, this guy's like some sort of soothsayer or, you know, like he, he has a magical way of detecting, and then it's not till the end, and and Harry shakes his hand and he feels the tingle, and and presumably you know Tilly also felt much more than just a tingle, and and that's when he's like, hey, off the record, who did it? You yeah, know? and and Harry's just like vampires. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Tilly was pretty awesome. I just I just found one more actually, and he just more... smacks down Rudolph. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rudolph is such I mean, a prick. How can we not like him after that? It just serves. Yeah, I love it. Mm. I just I found one more small note about Thomas that I totally forgot to to, mm. to bring mm-hmm. up real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is about who he is over over what he is. That's why I want to make sure I at least bring this up. I'm glad he still seems willing to try to fight his demons. You know all of this, but seeing him rush into battle for Harry, like the fight with a monster at Rudolph's house, that was just 
awesome. It was this serious moment of goosebumps chill for me when they heard the breaking glass from where Murphy had disappeared inside and Harry and company charging, but then you have Thomas and Mouse just, I think it was Thomas and Mouse, just blaze past everyone else. That was so cool. That was so cool. Mm -hmm. And I got two serious moments of genuine laughter when Thomas is in the, in, in the middle of a fight. That's just, it kind of relieves attention. The There's this moment... Um, when there's this fascination with like this crashing through the walls and then out comes Thomas right through the wall and you can just imagine this entertaining image of what must have been happening in those few seconds several walls away before that for me it's just funny I don't know what it is hmm. but also with Thomas in the 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 blunt object I think he tears off a table leg and he heads back into battle you you hear him with his Bruce Lee it just the sound of the board splintering Little moments like these are just making me laugh out loud again, and he, it's totally endearing me to Thomas. So I know I just bitched about Thomas, but I, or I was just bitching about a, a bit of his of what it says about human will based on his kind of magic system. Myself, I love Thomas as a guy. He's really, really growing on me. So, but yeah, you were also talking uh, just about Tilly as well. Tilly's awesome. Oh, I was I was pretty much done with Tilly at this point. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah, that that scene was great. Uh, the whole interrogation or, or deposition, not interrogation. Mm -hmm. um, I was excited for every next thing he was going to say with Tilly. I remember mm -hmm. that distinct impression. Yeah. Uh, how, how, okay. Two questions. One, at what point did you realize it was Odin? Uh, <laughs> uh, I, oh God, it's tough. It's really, really, really tough. I think it had to be spelled out a little more clearly for me than I would care to admit. But, um, oh, I'm trying to remember. There had to be like three or four big signals, and I would remember it if it was read to me again. I don't remember where specifically in the moment it was. So, for me... Uh, it might be the same moment. Let's hear it. Harry, Harry talks about the logo of Monarch Securities, right? And he's okay. like going through these theories of, of all the different things it could signify. And, and then we go in, into the office, and we get the description of him. He wasn't all that imposing to look at. A man in good shape, maybe in his early 50s. Lean and spare in the way of long-distance runners, but too heavy in the shoulders and arms for that to be all he did. His hair was long for a man, and just a bit shaggy. It was the color of a furious thundercloud, and his oh. eye was ice blue. A black cloth patch over the other eye combined with a vertical scar similar to my own made me think that I'd been right about the corporate logo. Reading that description, I immediately thought of Warden Diaz. Okay. Who is an allegorical Odin figure sure, in sure. the gap cycle. And I and I highlighted it and I just said, this dude is Odin. <laughs> Interesting. And then Later down the page, guard drops down on one knee and says, my lord. And I'm like, yes, this dude is Odin. <laughs> yeah. For me, it still wasn't clear yet. The fact that guard dropped down and said, my lord, while well, I was like, whoa, is this like a cult? I was like, ooh, this is interesting. Because I knew that, you know, the, the CEO of Monax Securities was one of the uh, free agents. I forget what they're called. Yes, but, he's, uh, he's a member of the Accords. He's uh, like free one holding of the, something? I forget yeah, free holding lord. Yeah. yeah. But I was like, oh my god, I, I do not remember. I know for a fact it was before he outright said the word Midgard. It was quite a bit before that. Oh, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I cannot Harry remember. Harry figures it out, but doesn't say who it is as well. Like, like they that have a little have bit of verbal sparring where, yeah. where he's like, you, you think you know who I am. 
and and Harry like makes a couple of remarks. You know, uh, he offers him coffee and something to eat, and and Harry goes, "I paused for a breath to think before answering." Duties such as this involve the obligations and responsibilities of guest to host and vice versa. If Vaderung was who I thought he was, he had been known from time to time to go forth and test people on how well they upheld that particular tradition. Nope, I hadn't figured it out yet. Really? Oh, okay. I still hadn't figured it out there. Yeah. Maybe. Um, there might have been, if there were hints in between, though, I might have figured it out before then and just not remember this line. Damn. Yeah, and then, and then he stands up, and when he stands up, he's like, Taller than here. Way more imposing. We we go from you know <laughs> two pages earlier where he says he wasn't all that imposing to work to look at, and then he stands up. And it's like I realized that he was big, damn near a giant, really. Standing, he'd have more than a couple inches on me, and his shoulders make mine look about as wide as the spine of a book. He studied or he rested his chin on the heel of his hand again and studied me with his bright blue eye. Like it's like. Obviously, the dude's magic, where he can like. I thought he was Icelandic. His, his, uh, <laughs> uh, and like, but yeah, and then and then he and then he says, "Well, I take it you believe you know who I am." That might have been what what started me down yeah. the line. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. then he Good. talks a whole bunch about foresight, and you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a great scene. That was another good scene. It was amazing. I have a feeling it's going to make my my favorite scenes. Although, and we may have to do this, Drew. I, what do you say about next week being our first week where we have five favorite scenes? We may have to do that. Five favorite scenes with this book. I don't know, man. At least oh four. boy. Of course, okay. we have honorable no, mentions we, can, we could we bring. Can I don't do, know. We can do five favorite scenes for Changes Part Two. That'd be cool, book. right? Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, yeah. This is definitely a. A viable option for me, right. as is just, the conversation with Tilly. That's it, that's what I makes me think that, that scene a lot. Because I'm like, I already have at least three that like that are viable options, and we're in the first half. Like, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see here. I don't have any notes on Mouse or Sonia, even though I love both of them. Uh, nothing on Molly yet. Anything else but characters? Or should we just call Sonia? Huh? Sonia. Sonia. The S A N, not S O N. Sonia. Well, I, okay. Sorry. You said Sonia. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's why I said... Yeah, I said Sonia. Sorry. It's, it's actually spelled S-A. Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. Sonia. Das Um I'm a huge fan of, son, <laughs> of Sonia. And the audiobook, of course, makes Sonia really, really shine. Yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting detail with him how Harry specifically notes his accent is not as thick anymore. Yeah. And it, it that really got my you know, the wheels <laughs> turning in my head of like... Now that um, uh, Michael's retired, has Sonya been, like, hanging out at the Carpenters and, and just living in America uh. for for a bunch of time? Like, <laughs> so he's losing his Russian accent or something? Like, I don't know. There, there must be some hidden adventure story. Um, maybe that's, uh, that's going to be in the, the Michael short story that we're going to be covering. That'd be um, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, I will say this. I'll, I'll tease this for you, Drew. Since you, you, you uh, oh wait, hold on. No, never mind. I'm not gonna do that. Never mind. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, other characters. Uh, I've already talked about Tilly. Talked about Susan and Martin. Talked about Thomas. Uh, talked about Molly. That's all of my notes on characters. All right. 
So let's go into miscellaneous then. In chapter yeah. six, Molly profaned breakfast. I assume you saw that. I did see that. Yeah. yeah. Another Glenn, Glenn Cookism. Absolutely. Uh, continuing that joke. Um, there's another quote that just another Harryism that made me laugh. Each strand had its own string of symbols, worked so timely or work so timely and precise that only Svartals and maybe Intel could have pulled it off. Don't let those ones go. I love them. I love them. Uh, so that one went over my head. I I had to read that line like a couple of times where I was like, is he, is he talking about like is he making a joke about microprocessors? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the computer company Intel. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, I, it just came so far out of left field where, like, how the hell would Harry know that? Like, yeah. he doesn't know shit about computers. Yeah. <laughs> I, that is one I had to repeat, too, but just because I was on audiobook, I legitimately had to stop and go, did you say Intel? And I hit the, the rewind 15 yeah. seconds. Oh, he did. Interesting. Yeah, like, I, 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 like, convinced myself that he was making some joke about, like, White Council intelligence agents or something. Oh, wow. So I was like, like, why <laughs> okay. would Harry be making a joke about microprocessors? That's cool. He knows nothing about yeah. computers. Works so tiny and precise. It works. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Um, there's one joke that he made that didn't land for me, though. It was in Chapter 14, when Molly points out that Harry's defenses are down now and it'd be a really convenient time to move in on him. And he just goes, Attention shoppers, fire mm-hmm. sale in the life mm-hmm. of one Harry Dresden, slightly used, shop smart, shop S smart, or something like and that. And it just kept going yeah. and going. I was like, all right, yes, we got uh, the point. That measure. would made me cringe by the end of it. I was cringing. Especially the yeah. smart to S smart. I was like, come on. It's just, I feel like that kind of humor is below Dresden. I'm disappointed. That's all. Yeah. Yeah, that was a... Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I have a couple. That, that's kind of like I admit that's kind of the reaction I have to most of his one-liners. Really? Where I'm just like I just kind of roll my eyes. Hmm. Um, it's not very often for me, but this was one. That's why I needed to bring it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. Others? I have yeah. a couple, but I'll let you jump on one since I just did the last three. I think. Um, yeah, actually, that it, it's funny. I just went back to that page with the the discount Harry Dresden's yeah. life thing, and it's just two chapters or, or two chapters. Like two paragraphs after that, that we start getting into the uh, Molly's faith. Um, mm. Yeah, and he goes, you know, she was conflicted on the whole issue of the church, which I thought was probably a fine state for her mind to be in. People who ask questions and think about their faith are the last ones to embrace dogma and the last to abandon their path once they've set out on it. Like I, I thought that was a really insightful, um, you know, point from from Butcher. I see. And Which, it was that and, close and to it, eh? I don't personally know him. Uh, I've never met the guy. Obviously, like, my wife is friends with his wife. Um, but the impression I get is that Butcher himself is not a religious man. So it it's nice that he seems to have a, a respectful and, and insightful approach to writing religious characters. Um, I... I tend to not find that in a lot of science fiction and fantasy from non-religious people. They, they tend to take very cynical, um, almost dismissive views of religion in their world building. So it, it, it continues to, to surprise and please me in, mm. in Dresden. And it was so close to this. Uh, that's, what made, that's what made you think of it, because eh? it was just so close to this shop smart, shop as smart. Yeah, it's, it's literally, so that paragraph and then one, two, three, the uh, three four paragraphs later yeah. is the whole thing about Molly's um, kind of her relationship with her faith. Mm. I have one prediction 
that I don't actually think is going to come true in this book. Um, hmm. Or at least I didn't when I first heard it. Um, it is a deadly legacy. If you accept it, you accept what comes with... with I'm going to try that again. Wow. If you accept it, you accept what comes with it. Which is, I asked. She shrugged her shoulder. It varies from one individual to the next. Your mother lost the ability to sleep soundly. It might be worse for you, or it might be nothing. Prediction is, I think this is going to become apparent in the next book. I don't think Harry can take any more complications for his mission in this one, but there's going to be something that yes. he suffers from this deal here. Yeah, there's absolutely another shoe that's going to drop. On yep. That. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And my last, last miscellaneous point is, thank God the Beatle is done for. Sorry, Harry. No, you loved it. I'm sure anyone who was a fan favorite, I know you loved it, but I am personally glad it's done for. I was just tired of hearing about how beat up it was. Yeah. <laughs> I may have, I feel like I just pissed off slightly more people than I'm expecting to have, but yeah. I gotta say, like, I really, really did not expect to have as negative a reaction to the first half of this book as I did. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I have another stupid prediction. I believe Mac is turned out. He's going to turn out to be God or something. <laughs> I want to make that prediction. I just I, like it. I will, I will say uh, I was pleased that for once we didn't uh, have a description of Mac where he says he's between. He looks like he's between, between 35 and 50, 50 years. Yeah. yeah uh, although we did once again get the faded dollar bill eyes for, uh, <laughs> like, I mean, I don't want to bring this up in every single episode, but holy crap! You may butchered. have to just so you can bring you can like, instill your point about how often it's in the book. Every right? single yeah. book, we get another description of Harry's lab. We get another description of Harry's apartment. We get another description of what Mac looks like. Of we get Lara another Rake. description of what of uh, I mean, not even Laura because she doesn't show up in every book, but like every single book. You know, like, there are certain things that's like, this shows up in every book. You don't need to spend a page and a half describing Harry's apartment again. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like I, I have gotten to the point now, like, I freely admit, uh, in changes and in turncoat, where, like, I'll start reading a paragraph and I'm like, oh, I'm just skipping this whole thing because yep. it's he's just retelling me something I already know. And I will freely admit there are times when I am rolling my eyes as... Uh, the audiobook starts another paragraph because I know how this next minute is going to be pretty much beat mm -hmm. for beat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I had a, this, this actually one thing I'm going to save for, for as a discussion. I'm just going to tease it actually for next episode. I was really, really like kind of indignant over uh, something that I thought was very, very poorly hidden. And it turns out it wasn't being hidden. I, it was actually true. I immediately got the impression that Maggie was not Harry's real daughter immediately. Um, I was sus of Susan, of course. I hate Susan, but I'm, I was waiting to see if anything would take, you know, it would go more down that path. And the Ebes let slip about Harry this one moment. They say it thinks it's saving its offspring, and there was I just thought it was a bit oddly phrased. It thinks it's saving its offspring. I'm like, is is which part is it like is incorrect? Does he think he's saving his offspring, or does he know that? But what really raised that red flag for me was in chapter 24, when Molly asks Harry why he hasn't tried using his own blood to track her. And he's like, well, I, I have tried yeah. that, but it didn't work. And he goes off on all this shopping list of reasons why it might not work. Yet even as convoluted as that reasoning gets, at no point does he consider maybe Maggie's not really his own daughter. Yeah. 
But uh, um, I, it seems pretty solid at this point, so now I'm really confused. I did, like, th- that thought crossed my mind, for sure. Uh, but I pretty quickly discarded it. Same. Uh, because just... I feel like that would just completely undercut the, the narrative backbone of the book. Um, I, I think that would be a really dissatisfying twist. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just I'm left confused that I was so certain after those three, especially that last one, I was like, oh well, yeah. But then it still seems so concrete. It's like, uh, I'm yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm still this first half of this book has really blown me away. Yeah. Um. Unfortunately, it has not blown me away. <laughs> I can't believe I'm uh, hearing that, dude. I I got it. Like I'm legitimately surprised. Uh, I really am surprised. I. While I have had a lot of issues reading this series, I've had a lot of points where I've been quite negative about it. Uh, The last three or four books have been very strong books. Like, I I rated them all, you know, I I would give them all between, like, 4 and 4.7, 4.8. I thought, like, Butcher was really hitting his stride as a writer... Uh, he was ironing out some of the issues that I had in earlier books, uh, some of the structural issues, and and some of the character issues. And then the first half of this book was just like, it feels like it. It feels like he just re rewinded to like book six. And you know, not that not that there are any of the like problematic sexualization issues that I had in, in blood rights present in changes, but like, but just from a, a structural mechanical writing standpoint, it feels like he's kind of regressed, which I found really, really surprising given how much people glow about this book. And, and I, I, I hope the second half pulls things a little, uh, you know, together a little better, a little more smoothly, and it's not as jarringly paced as as uh, the first 28 chapters have been. I can't believe how polar our opinions are on this. I mean, I already know this is going to be my favorite book of the series so far. I'm already positive of that. And you are you are absolutely right in that there are some very awkwardly shifting transitions that were just things are just happening and it's it is jarring me and i'm having to especially read you know listening to the audiobook having to go back and oh something just happened there and it was a little too quick but since i'm not the kind of person that really cares too much about pacing i should say unless it's really 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 bad i don't feel it's too bad here i love it i love this book so far and i guess it's not really surprising that i also am a huge fan of book six you were just comparing it to the sixth book and I was a fan of the sixth book. Maybe it tracks that I am a, a fan of the twelfth or eleventh. No, twelfth. This is the twelfth book. So but I love it, it. It's not just the pacing issues. Like really, it's a a, a combination of things. And I'm gonna try to get my thoughts together to explain it. Um, it it, it is in, in part the pacing issues. Uh, it is in part the scene transitions. Uh, it is in part the fact that the central plot line of the book is something that I am not interested in because I cannot stand Susan as a character. Oh God. Yeah. Well, it's not and, about it Susan. Is, and it is in part because 
early on, many of these action scenes have not um, had any kind of emotional uh, investment. Dude, his his building Uh, burned down, his home burned down. He was, like, devastated. But but like I said, because that scene was so jarringly written, I came out of that chapter where I was just, like, kind of numb. Oh, I cannot disagree more with that. Like I, it, there was no impact to to the apartment building burning down for me, or and there was no impact to Sonia showing up, and there was no impact to him being like, I can't feel my legs. I'm like, I, on on an academic level, I recognize these are massive changes, <laughs> hmm. um, but in the moment reading it, I was just disconnected, and. And because of that, the first half of this book just has not landed for me. Just has not done that. I agree with the Sonya showing up being what the hell. The rest really hit me. And I, I, I need to stress so that I disagree with all of that. <laughs> Those really hit me. Especially okay. that I can't feel my legs. That was a moment of slow eyes widening. Oh my god. For me. But hey, let's see how we come out of the, the second half of the book. Yeah, I'm like I said, I'm really hoping that... I'm kind of counting on <laughs> the second half, um, you know, fixing some of these issues and, and landing, you know, really sticking a good landing for me. Uh, because otherwise, this may be one of the most disappointing books I've ever read. <laughs> it won't be. No yeah, way. Like, no way. No way. Uh, like, I, I can understand, um, even like for the things that are, aren't, you know, putting all of that stuff aside. I'm not going to say there's nothing I liked in this. I, I do like some of the character development with Molly. I'm glad that Thomas is at least back in the picture, even if some of the character choices don't make sense. I'm glad that he's involved. Um, I, I like the way Murphy is growing. I'm a big fan of Tilly, Agent Tilly. Hope he sticks around. Um, I, I am interested in seeing how the large-scale conflict develops. Bringing in the idea of like, you know, mythological gods, uh, you know, Norse gods, and 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 we have this whole like the lords of the outer night, like great title, great title. Definitely want to know what's going on there. Yeah, like, there are things that I'm still interested in with the book, but unlike Turncoat or Small Favor or Proven Guilty, in those books, I was I was engaged with basically every element of the story here i'm engaged with like maybe a third of it you know and so it's it's kind of jarring going from from this run of really strong full package books to one that was hyped up a lot yeah i don't think i don't think we've covered a book on our podcast that was hyped up more than this (laughs) <laughs> like, you, well, you know, at least as far as books that we hadn't already read, you know, gotcha. or like, like, I mean, but even then, like this book gets hyped, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and so I, I find this a fascinating reading experience. I'm, I'm glad I, you know, we have inking out loud, we have a platform to talk about it because I know that my reading experience for this book is not typical. 
clearly the vast majority of people love this book. And I'm one of them. I have to say, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm with them. I'm with you guys. Um, I'll convince them. I'll turn them around. And and so it's always fascinating for me to read a book and when I at whatever point in the reading process when I realize that I'm having a very different reading experience than the majority of people, I want to try to break down why that is. And that's kind of what inking out loud is for, right? Like we're writers. We, we recognize that any book ever, you're not going to get a universal response to it. There are going to be people who love your book and people who hate your book and people who are meh about your book. Some books are going to have a, a drastically different distribution across that scale. Uh, and, and if I can see that experience firsthand and then try to analyze it and then apply that to my own writing, being like, okay, if I'm trying to write a story that I want to have an appeal to this sort of audience, what are the things that I didn't connect with in stories of that sort? And what are the things that made it succeed to a wide audience? Yeah. Yeah. Very well put. Well put. I am actually wrapped up on my first half of changes. If you want to head into the final draft. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. I've just been drinking water. Evian, to be precise. <laughs> That's it. I've decided right. I'm going to start uh, not drinking again. Just for a little bit. Maybe a little longer this time. But, uh, yeah. Water's all yeah, I need for enough. this time. Hey, changes, everybody. Making a positive change. Hey, yeah. Hey. <laughs> what about you, dude? Uh, yeah, so I am drinking a triple IPA. Ooh. Brewed with Citra, Nelson Savan, and Nectarone hops. And I got to admit, I don't think I've had an, a beer with Nectarone hops before. I have had Citra, Nelson Savan. Uh, the Nelson comes through really strongly on this. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe that that flavor profile. So it's, it's a triple IPA, 9.2%. Usually when you think about this sort of beer, you're like, okay, it's going to be really bitter, really strong. But citra hops are pretty self-explanatory. They You tend to get those like fruitier citrus notes. And I assume Nectaron is going to have some similar like stone fruit flavor. Uh, considering okay. the, the root of that, you know, nectarines. Um, and then Nelson Sauvin is a New Zealand hop that has a softer, like, kind of flavor profile. Um, this is going to sound weird, but to me, it tastes a little, like, sweaty. But it's not not in a bad way, if that makes any sense. It, it It's really hard to describe. It's a distinctive flavor. If you have, uh, like, Motuka or Nelson Savan, some of these, like, New Zealand hops, I think there's a really distinctive flavor profile to them. Uh, and mm. that's present here. Uh, the Citra, there is a nice little undercurrent of that fruitiness. It is not bitter. You don't get the really piney, harsh hops that you get in, like, some West Coast IPAs. Um, it's good. It's really good. And this is a three-way collaboration beer. Uh, with Cerebro Brewing in Denver, Casey Brewing and Blending uh, up in, oh, they're in Idaho Springs, uh, Colorado, and uh, Weltworks. And this one, uh, just, this is, this is kind of the theme 
of the whole first half of this book, I guess, uh, where there's a whole lot of misdirection and layers and, and different things going on. And this beer is called Secret Diversions. Ooh. Ooh. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. that's the end of the first half of Changes. It is. Uh, and this has been, what did you say, episode 145? This would be 145 according to the spreadsheet at the moment. Yeah, I believe after this, the spread, like, our, our episode recording order is going to normalize. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, we had a... Oh, a whole weird thing because I was recording some Star Wars episodes and, and I didn't know when I was going to record them or where they were going to fall in. But uh, but we're past the Star Wars episodes now. So um, next up will be Changes Part 2. Uh, get to find out whether or not Drew likes the end of this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure uh, Rob's going to love it. Uh, so, st- stay it's tuned gonna blow for me that away, suspenseful, um, you know, <laughs> uh, resolution. <laughs> <laughs> and and I I have to apologize. You know, like like I know I'm being much more analytical, much harsher on this book. Uh, I I know my opinion is is not a standard opinion. Um, I'm not trying to insult Jim Butcher. I'm not trying to insult the Dresden fan base by any of this. Um, this you is know. just, you know, my breakdown as a writer, as a critical reader. I I gotta say, I, I will say the same thing. Not I actually I realize I'm on everybody else's. I'm on the majority opinion on this one, but I realize, and it's something that just occurred to me after we just finished wrapping up Turncoat a few minutes before we started this episode. I spend so much time complaining compared to how much I like these books. I called the last book a 4.5 out of 5, although I think I spent yeah, you like... you said it 60... might have been your favorite in the series. Yeah, although I, I spent like a solid two-thirds of my time bitching about it. And so I'm going to say that same thing that Drew just said, although far more eloquently than I could put it. <laughs> apply that to what I've been saying for these past few books. I love these books. I love them. And I love this half of this book. It's already going to be my favorite book. I've pretty much decided that so if you like i'm aware of how much bitching i do and i'm <laughs> i'm just i don't hate them that much i need to stress it i'm just the things that i bitch about are things that i tend to just go on rants about and so it takes up the majority of my time but i'm loving this one loving it okay nothing negative i think well uh if if you are willing to look past our negativity or if for some <laughs> insane reason you love hearing uh, people criticize books like this um, and you want to support Inking Out Loud, we do have a Patreon as Rob mentioned uh, it's how we you know, pay for all of our hosting and, <laughs> and the wonderful wonderful episode <laughs> artwork uh, that, that Fel Candy does for us, she is truly something special and we're lucky to have her on board uh, so check us out there, we got a whole bunch of bonus content as Rob said As always, I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my co-host, Rob Santos. Right here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.